Well, as you remain standing, you can turn in your Bibles to Joshua uh, chapter 6 as we continue our survey of uh, the Old Testament stories that point us to the great gospel story that, of course, is found ultimately in Jesus Christ. We want to uh, give our attention tonight to that battle of, of Jericho and We only have so many minutes always in the evening service, and there are a lot of verses in front of you if your Bible is open to Joshua 6. And so to get us going, uh, what I want to do is just simply read through verse 16. So about the first half of the chapter, and then I'll pray and we'll begin together. So uh, listen as as God does speak to you uh, once again through his perfect and powerful word. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. And let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. They said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word come out of your mouth, until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early. The dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we know that you have called us in your Son, Jesus Christ, to be part of his army. That we would take up his armor every single day and fight the good fight of the faith. So, Father, we need the help of this text that reminds us that the battle belongs to you. And what a comfort it is knowing that such is the victory in Jesus Christ promised to us. And we pray it in his name. 
Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Earlier this summer, C-SPAN had published one of these surveys of academic presidential historians that seems to go out every so many years. And it was simply a a request to those historians to put together their top 10 and worst 10 lists of presidents of America. And if you've ever seen those lists of which presidents are the best, which presidents are the worst, uh, you know at least at one level, what that list always reflects are the current contemporary concerns and what the current contemporary historian thinks is actually quite vital and important. But historians that know better know that it's sometimes difficult to parse through which president belongs high up on the list and which president belongs lower on the list. That's why one historian in this study remarked, not all very effective presidents can be great, in my estimation, because greatness also depends upon the magnitude of the challenge. So if I told you the list of 10 presidents... And if I put it before you students, even those of you in high school, I'm sure what you would see in that list of 10 presidents is among most, that there's this common denominator. Uh, there's, there's a common magnitude of a challenge that belonged to their presidency, which is why among these select men, no matter the time period of the survey, uh, they have always risen to the top of the list. And some of you, if you've seen these things before, know exactly what that common denominator is. They were a president during a war. Wars advance and make history. Wars advance and make leaders. If you know your Bible well enough, you know that redemptive history, doesn't it, often move forward on physical and and spiritual battles and wars. And what we come to tonight in Joshua chapter 6 is, of course, what may be the most famous battle in all of Scripture. Kids, you probably know it well. Joshua as he fought the battle of Jericho. So if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, you need to know that as we're going through this sermon series we've titled The Old Gospel Story, it's following some degree of logic as it's trying to give you not just these stories that point us forward to the substance found in Jesus Christ, that substance quite clearly portrayed in the Old Testament, but it's also giving you a sense of the major sweeps of the Old Testament because we began a few weeks back in the middle of Numbers because Months and months ago, we had studied Exodus and previous to that, Genesis in the morning series. At the end of Exodus, we saw God's glory dwell among his people in the tabernacle. And then as they wandered forth to the promised land, what we noticed in the middle of Numbers is that they fell short, didn't they? The spies were sent into the promised land. Ten of them came back with a bad report and the people believed the bad report and it was because of that unbelief, that disobedience, that an entire generation of people in Israel, did not get to see the promised land. Then we spent the next few weeks looking at a few other stories and numbers, and last week we came to the end of Deuteronomy. The 40 years had come to a conclusion. Moses was allowed a glimpse into the promised land, but you remember that Moses, in the book of Numbers, he himself had fallen short, and God had said, Moses, you're not going to get to enter into the promised land. So Deuteronomy tells us the time had come for God's people to get into the promised land, thus by the end of Deuteronomy, The time had come for Moses to die. So we noticed he was was buried there nearby the promised land. And Joshua picks up the story with the nation of Israel 
entering into the promised land. By this point in Joshua chapter 6, they're already across the Jordan River. Spies have been sent out into Jericho, and this book of conquest, this book of taking the promised land, now actually gets its military action when Jericho finds the siege in our text. So we have before us simply a story about a battle. And I want you to see quite clearly and quickly from chapter 6, first, God's unthinkable strategy before we see God's unstoppable victory. That's what you want to see, God's unthinkable strategy that leads to God's unstoppable victory. Now, some of you have been in here before and you've stood before presbytery for a licensure exam or perhaps an ordination exam. Others of you in here I know are wanting and desirous to prepare for such an exam. Kids, you might even in a Sunday school class have a Sunday school teacher one day ask you, where in the Old Testament would you find Joshua in the battle of Jericho? And most people, understandably, would say Joshua chapter 6. But those that know the story would say it actually begins in Joshua chapter 5. And that's what I want to show you. I want to show you the warrior before we get to the war. And then we'll notice God's unthinkable strategy. Look again, chapter 5, verse 13. Joshua's by Jericho. We know that. It's true of beginning of chapter 6 as well. It's a continuous scene you're meant to see here from chapter 5 through 6, I believe. He was by Jericho, and he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now, kids, you can picture the Lord's captain, the Lord's commander there, and surely before Joshua's eyes, he would have been this fearsome and frightening, a solemn and serious figure. But as God had commanded Joshua at the beginning of this book, be strong and courageous, you see that Joshua seems to be strong and courageous. He's not running in fright. He's not racing away in fear from this mysterious commander. He simply asks a question. You notice what he says at the end of verse 13. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And sometimes you know that the answer to an either-or question is properly neither. Because that's what the commander says. Look at verse 14. He said, no, I'm the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And it's that simple statement. You'll notice he didn't answer the question. But if you notice, he did answer the question. The Lord's commander has arrived to fight the Lord's fight for the Lord's people. So what Joshua does is what he should do. You see, he falls down in verse 14 and worships this man significantly, even for, I think, the identity of the Lord's commander here. He receives the worship of Joshua. And then he says, look at verse 15, Take off your sandals, Joshua, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Kids, can you, I think, maybe of another time in the Bible where that same sentence, nearly identical sentence shows up. Take off your sandals, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. Wasn't it Yahweh speaking, the Lord, to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3? There's a repetitive reality going on here with now Joshua in the conquest of the promised land. And I want you to see actually how even this simple scene is quite significant for two things that's true about God. Number one, what this scene shows us is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. It was all the way back in Exodus 
So many decades before that in Exodus 23, God had promised his people through Moses, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him, obey his voice, for my name is in him. I've gone before you to prepare a place. God is faithful to his promise. He's faithful to bring his people into the place of his promise. And surely you know, even in the New Testament, in the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, place is really important. Remember what he told the disciples there in the upper room discourse of John. Behold, I'm going to prepare a place for you. God is always faithful to his promise. It shows us not only God's faithfulness, but it shows us this simple scene in chapter 5 at the end, God's independence. God's independence. I want you to see that even from the answer that was given. Are you for us or for our adversaries, Joshua asks. And uh, the Lord's voice says, no, neither. Uh, we, we might say it differently. Joshua, you've asked the wrong question. Because the question isn't, is the Lord on my side? The question actually is, am I on the Lord's side? Which is why Joshua seems to recognize that what he owes the Lord, because the Lord is independent, he does what he wants in his sovereign decree and sovereign desire, what belongs to Joshua, is dependence before the Lord and service to the Lord. Thus, he would say at the end of verse 14, what does my Lord say to his servant? So the Lord's commander is on the scene. And that sets the stage because I would take verse 2 of chapter 6 when Yahweh speaks as nothing other than the Lord's commander speaking. So we get to God's unthinkable strategy. Notice verse 2 of chapter 6. He says, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And, and right there from the outset, you notice, don't you, students, that the, the victory is, is totally assured. And it could be totally assured by God having said to Joshua, uh, Joshua, I will give the city into your hand. And that's true enough, isn't it? And that would be proper enough, isn't it? This promise from God. But he says, no, I've already given the city into your hand. The battle is such a foregone conclusion that those walls you see out there in front of your eyes, it's as though they've already crumbled before you. Such is my power. So kids, you understand the unthinkable strategy in its simplicity. What is it? Well, the nation of Israel is going to spend the next week fighting against Jericho. But, but their fight is going to be little more than just marching around a city. For six days in a row, they're going to march around it once. They're not going to say anything. Actually, Joshua is at pains before that first day to simply tell them, you must be quiet. Shh. I promise. You really must be quiet. Only talk when I tell you to talk. Uh, you can picture there's this armed guard that goes first. Then following them would be the seven priests with ram's horn trumpets, followed by the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, followed by the rear guard as well. And then for six days, they march around the city once. Then they go back. Then on the seventh day, what are they going to do? They're going to march around seven times. And when the time is proper and the trumpets have gone forth, well, what are they going to do but shout a cry of victory? Those same trumpets that would become famous in Israel for sounding forth years of jubilee are going to sound forth, aren't they now even? Jubilee has come. Liberation has come as the promised land's about ready to be conquered. It's set up, isn't it, in such a clear, unmistakable way that who gets the glory there at Jericho? It's God. And doesn't the Lord always love to do that when he fights battles for his people? He does it in such a way that he gets the glory. 
Of course, when he sends forth his son, Jesus Christ, what does 1 Corinthians tell us? But it's in that unthinkable strategy that God takes the wisdom of the world and confounds it. He takes the strength of the world and shames it. Nobody would try to fight a battle this way in the ancient world. And that's precisely why Israel is going to fight this battle this way in the ancient world. It's an unthinkable strategy that leads to an unstoppable victory. Clear enough. You'll see verse 7. That he says to the people, go forward. March around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And so, you notice in the next few verses that we read, the marching begins. Slow, sure, and steady. Like a number of you, I imagine, I, I grew up watching a number of these animated renditions of Old Testament Bible stories. And a few of them just seem to be kind of imprinted into my mind, one of which is the Battle of, of Jericho. And the way this animated story told the truth was that as the nation of Israel, as its army began to march around that city the first day, uh, what we were told, at least in that version of the story, is that the leaders of Jericho were up on their strong wall, laughing at the ineptitude and the inability of the Israelites, thinking that they could crush and conquer mighty Jericho by marching around a wall with trumpets. But what you need to know is that couldn't be further from the truth because the Bible tells us that the leaders in Jericho didn't find it funny what was happening there. They were genuinely terrified by what was happening there. You don't need to turn back, but if you went back to chapter 2, what you would find is the spies, they've gone out to spy out Jericho, they found refuge with Rahab, and she tells them in verse 9 through 11 of chapter 2, she says, the fear of you has melted upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. As soon as we heard of God's mighty acts in the Exodus, our hearts melted. You need to think of the leaders of Jericho up there on their strong walls, absolutely trembling, shaking, quavering. Yes, trumpets are going forth, but there's no battle sound going out. It's almost as though the sound of silence is what's going to win the victory here. And I'm sure many of you know, sometimes uh, the most unnerving thing in the midst of a hustle and bustle-like world that we live in is something quiet, something unexpected, something altogether disturbing. So for six days, that happens, doesn't it? And then the seventh day arrives, and the unstoppable victory comes. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the walls fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. The language there is almost as though the walls collapse and become this ramp up which the nation of Israel quite easily and simply goes to conquer that which God had already given them. It's his unthinkable strategy that leads to his unstoppable victory. It's a story of a battle. Just a, a few nights ago, we were gathered together as a family for you know, our family Bible reading time in the evening. And, and one of the kids who has been, we'll say delinquent for a few times running now, came in rather late to our Bible reading gathering. And so I told him, I said, well, why don't you just stand up and sing Joshua fought the battle of Jericho for us? 
And he was looking at me a little bit strange face. And I said, well, you can always sing it on Sunday night before the church when we study the text if you want to. And then he bust out real quickly into the chorus of Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. But many of you know, what's the verse of that old Sunday school song say? And talk about your men of Gideon. Talk about your men of Saul. But there's what? None like good old Joshua at the battle of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And students, you stop right there and you say, wait, no, he didn't. That's what you should say. What did Joshua do at the battle of Jericho? He just delivered the Lord's word to the Lord's people, and then the Lord did all the fighting. It's God's unthinkable strategy. It's God's unstoppable victory. This is a story that's not at all about Joshua's strength. It's not at all about Joshua's ability. It's why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 says, by faith. The walls of Jericho crumbled as the people of Israel encircled it for seven days. It's a story, what? Of faith. It's not a story of strength in God's people. It's not a story of God's people living by sight. It's a story of God's people in a quintessential Old Testament way of of living by faith. So what I want to do as we come to a close is show you how this text demands that we have faith in three truths about God. And we'll make some more comment on this famous battle scene before us. First of all, it tells us that we're to have faith in God's power. Faith in God's power. If you just read through the text in one sitting, you would notice the number of times, I think it's ten times, that the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. It's because the Lord's presence is what's central to the whole battle. Look at verse 11. So, Joshua caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. There in the center of the march lied that preeminent place of God dwelling with his people. Who was doing the fighting? The whole march was designed to show God was doing the fighting, that it was God's power that was going to win the battle. I wonder how many of you are are prone to, to fight in your own strength, this good fight of faith. How many of you might be prone to fight with your own eyes this good fight of faith when Jericho is reminding us for God's people it's a fight of faith as we look to the Lord's strength. So it calls for faith in God's power. Number two, it calls for faith in God's justice. Faith in God's justice. Again, if you glance through the text, what you would see is a number repeated over and over. Kids, that number is one you might call God's favorite number. It's the number of seven. You got seven times they're marching around the city. You got seven days. You've got seven priests. You got seven trumpets. What's so significant about seven? Well, some of you would say, and you'd be partly right, is that you would know in the Hebrew scriptures, the the number seven, it represents completion and, and perfection. But you know, also the number seven represents creation. For it was in seven days God created the heavens and the earth. And what you're getting here in the march seven times on the seventh day is nothing more than the decreation of Jericho. It's going to cease to exist. Look at verse 21. Then they devoted, according to God's word in the previous verses, all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the sword's edge. It's beginning a conquest of the promised land that has caused many people throughout the centuries to wonder about God's justice. 
You mean to tell me he's commanded his people to take the promised land by killing all of the unbelievers in it? Well, you have to know something about the nation of Jericho at this moment. First of all, as God had prophesied way back in Genesis chapter 15, that when the time came to take the promised land, it was going to be because the iniquity of the Amorites, people there in Jericho, it was having, had reached its limit. It was up at its height of heinousness. Deuteronomy chapter 18 tells us that the land was filled with abominable practices that deserve God's wrath. And you want to notice verse 1 of chapter 6 also. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. That's a shutting up that's not just military in nature, it's also spiritual in nature. For if they had opened their gates to God's people, it would have been akin to them opening their hearts to the God of Israel. And they had been shut up. So therefore they were deserving what? Of complete destruction and decreation. Don't you often think that sometimes when you come to these passages about God's justice, that the reason that we struggle with it is not because we struggle with God's justice. It's more so that we struggle to understand sin is truly that heinous to deserve God's total justice. So it's faith in God's power. It's faith in God's justice. Finally, it's, it's faith in God's mercy. Notice verse 25. Tucked away into the story is the redemption of Rahab. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day. Rahab, who according to Joshua chapter 2, believed the Lord's word. Rahab, who thus was saved according to her faith in God's mercy. And maybe you know that Rahab gets tucked away into another chapter some years in the future. It's Matthew chapter 1, with the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That through the redemption of this unbelieving prostitute, what is God going to do? Send forth his ultimate victory. That would likewise be through an unthinkable strategy. An unstoppable redemption was coming. And in ways you haven't probably imagined before, did not the Lord Jesus Christ go to that cross silent? As the nation of Israel silently marched around the city of Jericho, like a sheep is led to the slaughter, silent. So is Jesus silent before his accusers. And in the very end, what did he do? Shouted. It is finished. The battle is won. What kind of faith do you have? God's power, God's justice, God's mercy. This battle story is truly an echo of another battle story. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you that you have shown us the abundance of your riches in mercy and grace, compassion and tenderness in your son, Jesus Christ. That it's through that cursed cross of Calvary that you have achieved the victory so long promised for your people. And we pray that we would know it, that we would look to it, that we would trust in the work of your son, knowing that it's in that very work that we find redemption in life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.